That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to episode 360 with my guest Seamus Kirst. Uh, This is from a live recording we did uh, in Oakland a couple of months ago. Uh, Today's episode is sponsored by Johns Hopkins University. Every day is about making tomorrow better and is the number one ranked school of public health since 1994. Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health can help you become a public health advocate to transform communal health in a holistic, evidence-based way. With 20-plus graduate programs and more than 300 global research projects, it's the oldest and largest school of public health. Learn more at jhsph.edu slash feelgood. Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, protecting health, saving lives, millions at a time. And we will put a link um, on the website under show notes to that. Uh, My name, maybe I should introduce myself. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. Uh, yeah, that's it. Now there's more. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, this, uh, my teeth are whistling tonight. I'm like, uh, I'm like an old school Western guy. Gabby Hayes. Uh, this show is part interview, uh, part listener confessions uh, via the surveys you uh, can fill out online. They're anonymous, of course. And um, the link on our website to uh, Amazon might not be working uh, right now. We had to take it down for reasons I won't go into, but hopefully it will be uh, it will be up back uh, very soon. I want to read a struggle in a sentence. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Tornado. And about her depression, she writes, It feels like being stranded in the middle of nowhere and watching a plane pass overhead. Oh my God. Yes, yes, and fucking yes. That is so... That so nails it. 
Uh, a snapshot from her life. Uh, she also deals with uh, anxiety and codependency. Last year, I went to Guatemala. I was raised in a pretty sheltered environment, so that was way out of my comfort zone. While I was there, my friend took me to this little ranch place that had a canopy with loads of zip lines and canopy bridges over the forest and horses. I'm terrified of heights and horses, but guess what? I did it all. I did the zip lines, tiptoed across the bridges with my heart in my throat, and I even rode a horse. I was so proud of myself. Three for three. Then I went back to my friend's house. She's from Guatemala, and I was staying with her family, and her mom said, wow, I guess, uh, insert her name, doesn't travel much. Why would she bring the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe on a trip across the ocean? I went in the bathroom and cried. How can it be that after being so brave, I was so scared of seeming like an idiot? In hindsight, Edgar Allan Poe isn't a great beach read. <laughs> that fucking made me laugh so hard. Like if you had an opening of a movie where you just panned on the beach you show one person, they're, you know, they're reading some trashy beach novel, and another person's reading a romance novel, <laughs> and then the third person, probably with, like, pale skin, is reading the collected works of Edgar Allan Poe. That would, th- that would say everything you needed to say about that character. Thank you for that. That really made my day. Uh, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Samantha B., and she writes... 20 years ago, my parents announced to me and my brother and sister that they were getting divorced. They had planned to get sandwiches from a favorite bakery, then go sit in a beautiful park somewhere, private and green, where any of us could get up and walk away to throw rocks in the river if we felt the need. But it was raining. So instead, we sat in a cramped and steamy car outside the bakery, all of us too miserable to even look at the sandwiches. As I stared blankly out the window, trying not to see my brother crying or my little sister looking utterly confused, I realized I was staring into the car parked next to us and that I knew the people inside. It was a family whose kids I used to babysit, and I'd heard some rumors that the father had had a sex change, though I wasn't sure. Um, I wasn't sure I believed it. This is long before anyone in my little world was, quote, woke about transgender issues. But looking at them now, I could see that there were indeed two women in the front of the car, one I recognized as the mother and the other, uh, and one who looked like a plump female version of the father. My dad waved at her awkwardly. She waved back in the same way, and I saw that one of the daughters in the back seat was wiping her eyes. They were obviously having a meltdown of their own. In that moment, my only clear thought was simply, Jesus, families are fucked up. I love things, though, where you realize that you are, you're not alone in it. Uh, And I wanted to read that before this. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a a woman who calls herself Anxious Mess. And um, a snapshot in in her uh, struggles are uh, anxiety, love addiction, and codependency. And a snapshot from her life, she writes, I constantly rely on my phone and social media to distract me from the fact that I'm slowly wasting my 20s away doing nothing of value. It's depressing seeing the world go on without you. Everyone else is having fun. Everyone else is traveling and falling in love and chasing dreams. I switch between Facebook and Instagram back and forth until my phone dies, and then I'm alone with my thoughts once again. 
there are so many myths at work in the depressive pit you are talking yourself into. Number one, there is no keeping up in the world. It's not a race. Um, name a single thing that, um, that you missed out on, on social media. I, I can't ever think of a single thing. Anything that's important enough, somebody's going to contact you about it. But we have this belief that the world is going on with, without us. And I lived most of my life believing that myth. And the, the other thing we do to drive ourselves crazy, which you're doing here, and I understand it, you're in your 20s, you're comparing your insides to other people's outsides. You write, everyone else is having fun. Listen, I, one of my best friends in the world was one of the happiest people on the outside, and she shot herself in the head in 2001. You never know what is going on inside somebody. Never assume that this is a race and that you're losing it. It is a way to torture yourself. And like you said, distract yourself. The thing to do is find out what's underneath the need to distract yourself. Find out what those feelings are because you will be running from them the rest of your life if you don't do the work to find out what's happening. And feeling your feelings will not kill you, but running from them might. That's been my experience. I don't want to. I don't want to get all preachy. I've told you guys that uh, one of our sponsors is uh, BetterHelp, and uh, it's an online therapy place. And I always like to give you updates and tell you. Uh, uh, about what I've been working on, and uh, as you know, I've been fighting a uh, little battle with nighttime ice cream lately because, uh, like I was sharing with um, our survey taker, I am running from something, and I don't know what it is, and it's so vague. It's just easier to eat ice cream to fall asleep than it is to... Uh, get still and face what whatever fear or discomfort is underneath it. And um, as I began to talk uh, to my therapist this week, I realized that I am feeling some financial anxiety. As I, as I mentioned to you guys, they changed the algorithm that, men, uh, that measures downloads for podcasts. And so ad revenue for, for the podcast has gone down by about 45% in the last three months. And uh, it was, you know, it's been freaking me out a little bit. Uh, and so my therapist said, well, she always likes to say this, let's look at the facts on the ground. And so she broke down what, you know, the budget is, what expected income is, you know, how much a, a month are you spending on, you know, your electric bill and this and that. And it turned out to not be as catastrophic as I as I thought it was in my mind. And she said, vagueness is where anxiety loves to thrive. And so maybe uh, Anxious Mess, who uh, filled out the, the last survey, 
maybe um, talking to somebody, putting a pen to paper and writing out what is actually going on instead instead of having this vague feeling that there's this gigantic race that you're losing because it, it, it's a terrible way to be your own worst enemy. And take it from me, I, I made that mistake for the first 40 years of my life. Um, so if you want to uh, check out BetterHelp, uh, go to betterhelp.com uh, slash mental. Uh, fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if uh, online counseling is right for you. Uh, you need to be over 18 and you can communicate uh, more than once a week with your counselor via email, live text, um, chat, phone, video. Yeah, it's um, there's a bunch of choices. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Ant Tony. And uh, about his depression, he writes, uh, like wearing a weighted vest that you can't take off but feel lazy for not being able to figure out how to take it off on your own. That is so fucking good. About his anxiety, like a room that is filled with a dozen voices from past memories that are all screaming, you should be doing something more important in your life as you try to stay calm in a casual conversation. Oh, these are so good. Um, and then about experiencing um, uh, prejudice, he writes, when you see me empty the trash or vacuum the floor, do you think it's because I'm lazy or didn't go to college? I paid for my undergrad cleaning up after you, but I'm just another black guy who feels your judgmental eyes and ignorant comments. I work here because I'm too financially unstable and self-loathing and afraid to leave. Um, and then a snapshot from his life. My mother walking into my room as I am stressed out about work, finishing my degree, and my own sadness. To have her give a monologue slash a lecture on how my isolation is hurting her feelings in the family but not asking if I am okay. Not that it would matter. I'm not comfortable to tell her that I've been sad for years, so I sit there, ride the guilt trip, and wait for her to finish so I can try to work on my paper and feel like shit for the rest of the night. Thank you for filling that out. And, um, man, I, I don't know what it is like to experience all of the issues uh, that you have, but I sure know what it's like to um, isolate and feel sad and that's a terrible place to be and I, I hope you can find somebody to to reach out to because it definitely sounds like home is not a, a safe place for you to uh, feel validated this is an awful moment thing uh, filled out by a designer depression and uh, she writes as an artist I now have severe carpal tunnel in my dominant hand Three main fingers on that hand are numb, and I've been advised to have surgery. I have mixed feelings about the surgery. Not because I'm afraid of them making a mistake and ruining my career as an artist, but because I've enjoyed using my numb fingers to masturbate. <laughs> there has to be, there has to be like a medical term for that when you decide to let your, uh, let your numb fingers be so that you can so you can feel like the there's it's another person uh, touching you. You know, you've heard that, uh, like when you sleep, <laughs> there used to be this thing in college where, uh, called The Stranger, where you would, f 
you would sleep in such a way that your arm would fall asleep and then you would not be able to feel your hand and you would masturbate and it would feel like somebody was masturbating you. It was called The Stranger. Uh, I don't know what the name would be for leaving the numb fingers, uh, letting the visitors stay. <laughs> how many how many visitors are we going to let stay on this hand? Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Ambiguously Invisible, and um, uh, he is a trans male. And uh, about his depression, he writes, uh, a choke collar that never lets me stray too far from my somewhat safer than the outside world apartment. God, do so many of us know that feeling. Our world gets so fucking small, but in our minds, safe. Uh, about being a sex crime victim, always planning two escape routes from any room. And about experiencing sexual bias. Always editing my past so I'm not talking about girl stuff while people are actually reading me as male. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, this woman calls herself, I just want to turn my brain off. And about her OCD, she writes, um, if I do every little thing right, then I can stop worrying about doing every little thing right. And then I can finally be happy. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Atkins diet in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Jody. Jody, sit down for a second if you, uh, if you uh, wouldn't mind. I just want, no, just over here, grab a microphone if, uh, if you would. Um, this might be the last uh, series of, of uh, live recordings uh, here in, in Oakland that we do for a while. Uh, Jody sold the newspaper uh, recently, and um, it's been underwriting the, uh, the, these recordings. Uh, I think this is like, what, our sixth or seventh one, maybe something like that? And uh, I just wanted to acknowledge uh, Jody for all the work she's put in. Um, she has made it so simple for me to come up here because, honestly, the thought of, of like, trying to find airfare in a hotel and uh, where's it, where are we going to record it and all that stuff just makes me want to go take a nap. And so when she said i'll take care of all of it you just have to show up i was like thank you thank you so much because i do love doing these and getting to meet you guys and uh i met uh, a couple of listeners before the show uh and it's so moving to even just hear five minutes of your your story and what the podcast um means to you 
it's it's nice because a, a lot of times I feel like I'm doing it in a in a vacuum there in my uh, my bedroom. <laughs> um, but I want to. Uh, I think this story that I've asked Jody to share. In fact, I even read uh, a written version of it on the podcast. But um, to honor Jody and to highlight why she likes the podcast. Uh, I've asked her to share a story uh, with you guys. And she's been kind enough, despite her hating uh, speaking publicly, to, uh, to share it with us. Thank you. <laughs> um, I do want to clarify one thing, that uh, I wasn't a majority owner of the newspaper, so you know, I'm kind of going along mm. with the outcome anyway. It's still independent, locally owned, uh, which is fantastic um and so please like keep supporting the express and good things to come but yeah and and they uh have a rare amount of uh journalistic in- integrity given the uh, environment in in today's world of quote unquote journalism um so yeah do please keep supporting them and um i didn't know that you weren't a majority ownership so now i actually don't want to hear your story yeah. Good knowing you, though. Okay, so uh, this happens, what, like four months ago, something like that? Yeah, in March. I, um, I'm not close with my parents at all. They live in Kansas. Um, and I refuse to go back to Kansas. When they pick me up at the airport, they like to drive me straight to the church to show me the church. It doesn't matter what time of day or what weekday or whatever. Um. So I meet them elsewhere, and in March, I was going to meet them in Bullhead City, Arizona, and um, which has casinos, and I thought I would take a little trip on the way there just for my own pleasure, and so I ended up going down near the Salton Sea, just me and my dog and my, um, my four-wheel drive, my Jeep, and... Um, by the way, w- w- uh, was the idea that gambling would make emotionally dead parents more interesting? <laughs> it kind of does. Yeah. Because without that, yeah. there's, it's there's a distraction. Um, it's the one thing we can do together. Um, so I, on the way down, I camped outside Pyramid Lake in L.A. under the stars in the middle of the desert. And then I went to the Salton Sea area, and there's a desert down there as well, just sand dunes, like Badlands cactus and sand and that's it and I drove up into the canyons and just made a fire and was watching movies and drinking a bottle of wine and realized I hadn't seen my dog in a long time and I'm my dog is my life and uh and I had seen like coyote warning signs in the in the state park there and he's always off leash it's never been a problem and uh I thought, oh, my God, a coyote got him. So I got up, and I started looking around, and I'm calling, and I'm looking for, like, is there blood on the ground, um, any evidence, and it, and it was pitch dark. And uh, and I'm howling because if I call his name, he doesn't really do anything, but if I howl, he'll howl back. That's just our thing. That's how we communicate. So I'm climbing up these sand dunes, howling up at the moon, trying to find my dog. And what's your dog's name? Dexter. Yeah. And... The sand dunes are slippery, so I keep falling, and I'm scratching my legs up on rock and, rock and cactus, and um, there's nothing. And I, I go for hours going up and down the sand dunes to the point where I can't talk anymore. 
And I finally just give up and I crawl into the back of my car into a fetal position and just cry. And I text my friends even though I have no signal just because I wanted help. And, um, and sure enough, like a few hours later, the dog just comes out of nowhere and jumps in the car and it's totally fine. Whatever. Um, <laughs> my dog's an asshole. But, um, well, you named him after a serial killer. Is it a big surprise? <laughs> That's another podcast. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I finally, I'm just exhausted and I finally meet my parents in Bullhead City and I can't talk. I can hardly walk. And I thought for the first time in my life, I'm actually going to tell them a story about my life that conjures emotion. And we're having dinner and I'm right to the climax of the story, right? Like we, we don't know if my dogs are going to make it back or not. And I'm crying. I can barely talk. And my mom interrupts right at the climax and starts talking to my dad about whether or not there's too much garlic on his french fries. And she doesn't just ask that one question and move on. She goes on for five minutes about it. And then finally when she stops, it's just dead silence. I'm like, I'm not going to enter this conversation again. And that was it. Like they have no idea if my dog ever came back or not. So anyway, that's just one story. That's why I love this podcast. Like anyone who listens to this podcast can relate. Um, that's, the, that's the real stuff in life. Yeah. There you go. Ch- <laughs> Chody Collie, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to bring up our, our guest now. He uh, is a freelance writer. Uh, he's the author of a, a book called Shit Faced, so you know he's going to be a good guest. Please welcome Seamus Kirst. Thanks for coming, buddy. Thank you for having me. Um, I come from the Oakland of the East, so I'm excited to be here. Brooklyn, he's, uh, he's referring to. Although, uh, would Brooklynites chafe at that comparison, or would Oaklanders uh, chafe at that comparison? Or would everybody... <laughs> Probably everybody. Yeah. Uh, where to begin? You're 26 years old? Yes. Um, some of the uh, things that we might touch on tonight, um, your battles with depression, um, suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, um, uh, your sexuality, um, what, what am I uh, missing? What yeah. other fun stuff? <laughs> um, yeah, then like substance abuse, some eating disorders mm-hmm. within that, and then hmm, that's all I can think of right now. I'm sure you know. I think that's or, enough. I think stuff will keep coming. Yes, yeah. Um, you were born where? I was born in Syracuse, New York, so okay. upstate. Okay. Post-industrial. And and give uh, give us kind of a sense of what the uh, emotional environment of your uh, house growing up was like. How many kids? What was your parents' relationship to each other and kind of to, to you guys? Yeah, so I have two siblings. Um, I have a sister who's actually five months older than me, not a biological miracle. She was um, adopted. And then during, while, once my parents decided to adopt her, it became easier for them to become pregnant, like, once they stopped focusing on it. The same thing happened with me. My brother is seven months older yeah. than me. Yeah. And oh. it's actually really crazy. It's a phenomenon, yeah. Growing up, I thought that it was very unusual, and the more I talk about it as I get older, I realize that that really does happen. 
yeah quite often it does um and then i have a younger brother who is like four years younger than me um my parents i grew up in like a very loving household but i would also say that both of my parents had pretty like traumatic childhoods um my mom is one of eight and she grew up in a super alcoholic household where her parents were like abusive mm-hmm. um emotionally and yeah most she didn't grow up in an alcoholic loving household <laughs> There's yeah. a phrase I've yet to hear. Yeah, she didn't have like f- yeah. fun alcoholic parents. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and then my dad grew up. Um, so I think actually something that's like I've always found really interesting is that three out of four of my grandparents were orphans and like were raised in orphanages. So I think that like kind of like that generational trauma was definitely at play in both of their houses. Um, and then my dad grew up like in a small factory town outside of Buffalo, New York. Um, his dad like worked at a factory, and his mom was a cleaning lady. Mm-hmm. And they had five kids, but there were like ten. It was like really kind of almost like Oregon Trail esque. Mm-hmm. Like five babies, yeah, kind of died, which is really dark. Um, and so, yeah. So like, I think his mom had a lot of issues with, and dad with, like grief after. All those, yeah, probably I mean, their did. losses, and then as kids, and then their losses as parents. Um, so, so you, anyways, you that's th- a really long way of yeah. No, no, no. That's that's yeah. interesting stuff because it sounds like uh, to become emotionally invested in uh, another human being was probably something that was fraught with uh, anxiety for mm-hmm. for them. Definitely. Like okay. I feel like it's. I mean, I guess whenever you read about like history of that time, like I think it's something that it's hard for me to even comprehend like how many, how usual or how much more usual it was to like lose a child or like with the world wars to like lose a spouse. And it was just yeah. like definitely a different time with what you could come yeah. to expect. I think with Ooh, the lights just kicked down in know, a very wow. dramatic way. <laughs> um, it's mood lamp. Yeah. There's seasonal and affective disorder lamps. Our, our, our <laughs> <laughs> this is the right, this is the I right requested crowd. them. They're like, that's actually, it's not my color temperature. That will make me bipolar. <laughs> Could we make it uh, 100 degrees more yellow? Um, so go ahead. Um, but yeah, so my parents were like really very loving and like um, they loved each other and they loved us. Uh, they, but like I think that they had their own things they were like dealing with in terms of trauma in their childhoods and like. Um, we definitely grew up in a house. Like, I feel like as I've gotten older, they've become much, like, not much more, but, like, they are financially comfortable-ish now. Mm-hmm. But, like, growing up, like, money was, like, a serious stressor. Like, they always had a lot of debt. And um, so I think in that sense, it was, like, you know, there it was, like, a loving household, but there was also a lot going on and, like... A lot hovering over them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh Give me some uh, snapshots from your from your childhood that you think are kind of emblematic of either your inside or your outside world. Um, hmm. Maybe how you felt like you fit in or didn't fit in, your view of yourself, your view of other people, your place in the world, what the future held, any any of those things. Yeah, so actually, like, I think one thing that I always found really interesting, and actually my mom and I did an interview like two weeks ago with NPR StoryCorps, and we were actually talking about this. Um, 
so she grew up in like a super alcoholic household where there was like this huge importance put on kind of hiding what happened in the household and like you know like curtains drawn like mm-hmm. what happens stays in here now when you say super alcoholic did the alcoholic have a cape yeah okay <laughs> he the alcoholic fought villains a, um a big a <laughs> mm-hmm. there's like a big a in the sky and then he'd yeah. leave um <laughs> and he'd always show up late to help <laughs> with a shitty excuse <laughs> Um, but yeah, so like she grew up in that type of environment and, um, so I think we, that kind of carried over into our childhood and we like had, I don't know, like it was definitely, we have like a combative environment in our house in the sense that like people could become very like explosive, not like physically, but like I would say everyone in my family has like a temper. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was just kind of like. I think somebody was fighting with somebody like most days of my childhood and there was just like, as it carried on, like as my issues became more of a thing, like we all kind of continued that sense of like hiding things and like you kind of had a reality at home and then like a reality that you would kind of express the outside world. And like my dad was the local columnist growing up and like Syracuse is small. So like he was a local celebrity, I would say. And like, I think that even, like, added more of an importance of, like, you know, you don't want to be, like, the dysfunctional family because it's, like, kind of, like, fucking up right. his career yeah. if you do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, give me some examples, then, of when it was loving. Yeah, like, I mean, it was always loving. Like, even within that, like, I think that was the thing that I always found interesting. And actually, earlier, I was even talking to somebody about this with, like, how you sometimes model not sometimes, a lot of times, like, model things that your parents did. And, like, my parents love each other very much, but also would get into big fights. And, like, so then we would, as siblings, and, like, when I had my first serious relationship in college, like, I would get into really huge fights with my now ex-boyfriend. And, like, I kind of thought that was normal. And, like, when that would happen, he would look, you know, like, disturbed because that wasn't how he grew up. And so I think that, like, that was kind of the environment. Like, it was very, like... um like, everyone loved each other, and we would, like, do all these fun things, and my parents were, are, like, genuinely, like, the most selfless people I know, like, and cared so much about, like, being present. Like, my mom would work nights at a group home so that somebody was home with us all the time, that we weren't being, like, raised by babysitters. Wow. Yeah, so they, wow. like, really, and they are, like, you know, like, me and my siblings are kind of brats, and, like, they very much, like, always put us first. Um, but then, like, within that, there just was a lot of... Like cyclical, yeah, I don't like stormy relationships. Yeah, it's like the kind of trauma it sounds like they went through, it's gonna reveal itself in some way. Right. Or another, either shutting down or anger or, you know. Mm -hmm. And like my mom always talks about, like with my book, like a lot of it is more focused on kind of the darker stuff because it's like nobody wants to read like then I went to the playground and like swang for four hours and went on the slide right um so it's like hard to work that stuff in but she's always like what about all the like positive memories and so like now I'm trying to make more of a point of being like there were a lot of positive yes. memories like yeah I, I fr- did ha- in many yes. ways have a happy childhood it's just like yes. I also like 
in certain ways didn't. <laughs> I, I totally understand that because I forget to do that sometimes on the podcast. And as I'm listening back to an episode, I'll think, um, boy, if I were that parent or that other person, I would feel kind of slighted because right. it doesn't paint an entire picture of me. But as a podcaster, you want the most compelling stories right. in that hour, hour and a half, however long mm-hmm. it is. So, um, so uh, what are what are some some of the uh, uh, moments you, you shared one that she worked nights uh, so that she could be with you uh, during the day. I mean, that's beautiful. Yeah. And just like, I feel like that's such a like symbolic gesture that really like represents how they approach our whole childhood. And like, um, I don't know, even like I went to Brown university for undergrad and that was in Providence, Rhode Island, which is like six hours away from, um, Syracuse and like my parents would like drive to Providence pick me up and drive me back that day like they were just like those types of parents like I don't think there was I mean obviously like I'm sure a million times I would be like you don't love me blah 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 but I don't think there was ever actually a moment where I like questioned that my parents loved me yeah the actions are so so important right you know um so give me some um some moments from from childhood I, I feel like we've established the ways in which they were loving unless you have uh more that you think uh you should share with us no i mean okay. yeah like my dad was just like literally coach like you know what i mean like very involved very loving but okay all right then that's not the full point of the podcast yeah no now let's throw them <laughs> under the bus yeah. we've dressed them up nice now let's hit them with the bus Back up over them and call it a night. Yeah, I'm reappropriating this as Pleasantville podcast. So we'll just yeah. keep talking about playgrounds and Little League. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what what would you say was the first moment in your life that you can recall where you felt different, out of place, uncomfortable in your skin? Yeah, I feel like, I mean... I don't know. I think it's really interesting. Like, I'm very young, and even when I think back to the 90s in terms of how people talk about, like, gender and sexuality now, it's like we've already come so far, which is saying a lot because we still have so far to go. But, like, I think that I remember, like, growing up in the 90s and, like, when I was younger, like, I had a sister who was five months older than me, and, like, I really only wanted to play with, like, quote-unquote girls' toys at that time. Like, I always played with, like, Barbies and, like, little castles with princesses and like was loved Disney and like was just never that interested in like you know like Tonka trucks are fucking boring so I like wasn't into that um unless there was a cute guy driving the Tonka truck yeah or less unless a princess was like zipping it around um (laughs) but so I think that like I mean I remember from the time my my earliest memories are probably of that and like that's something that like as a writer I've revisited a lot because I think that for I think, like, so many gay men, at least, that I've spoken to as adults have similar memories of that. And it's, like, a, it's, and I think that, like, when you're little, it's just, like, scary to feel that isolated and different. And, like, I feel like it's, like, interesting. I mean, I've always, like, found these, like, weird parallels between, like, how I would, like, play with a Barbie. And, like, once I realized that, like, that was taboo or whatever, how I would, like, hide it in a way that, like, I would later hide, like, binge drinking when I was 22, but it's, like, weird to look at those behaviors and, like, being secretive as a three-year-old or a four-year-old and, like... Imagine how powerful it it would be if Disney made a movie about 
a little boy or a little girl yeah. and their story mm-hmm. of, you know, um, realizing that they were different from the mainstream as right. a child, but supported it in a way that showed that playing with the, the dolls and embraced that, that mm-hmm. part of them, how, how helpful that would be to kids to see their story validated. Um, right. That would be nice. Some, would you? One of you get on that? Write that screenplay. I know. Wait, isn't Pixar like in Oakland or there around here? Yeah. <laughs> Let's go with picket signs after. But in, as much as I hate corporations, um, Mattel did that commercial like a year ago yeah. with the boy playing with the Barbie, and it's like I'm sure they were, you know, had crazy ass people like coming for them and oh, so i really what, give them credit I would for that so love to give, read all those letters and mm-hmm. respond to each and every one well one of just the, like, a xerox picture of my dick is my signature <laughs> <laughs> well and like one of the pics i forgot which finding dory or something like had a lesbian couple for like 0.5 seconds recently and like people yeah. freaked the fuck out so this movie that you're saying i think is so important because i think that it's good to make people freak out yeah and and to set the bar above we tolerate you. Right. You know, to maybe we love you for who you are. Mm-hmm. That would be that would be nice. Right, yeah. It is interesting how like pejorative tolerance is. Yeah. Like Yeah, just the sentiment behind mm-hmm. that. Like we'll allow you to live, but Yeah, you know, I with I slight disdain. I had a, a moment uh in my recovery about six years ago where and this is as a you know white hetero cis- cisgendered male i realized that all my life i had thought that god or the universe or whatever had merely tolerated me despite being disgusted by me so i can't imagine what it would be like for somebody who isn't all of the you know quote unquote uh normative mm-hmm. uh, doesn't check off all those right all those and even boxes. within that like larger equation like i'm so privileged and like yeah the only way in which i have ever experienced depression is through my sexuality and like that there's so many people who have are dealing with so much more yeah. um and but then yeah also like i guess touching off that too like i grew up um irish catholic if you can't tell by my name um <laughs> and so that was always like something and I didn't even go to, like, a, like my church was, like, very liberal and was always, like, pushing back against, like, the Vatican and, like, their weird rules um, and would, like, get in trouble. Like, there was, like, a picture of them, like, giving communion to, like, the Chancellor of Syracuse University who was Jewish or, like, they would have women at the podium with a fancy name, the altar or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and Boy, you didn't go to church, did you? No, the sad yeah. thing is I, did. I went to church until eighth grade, but I was yes. just like reading Lord of the Rings in the pews. Um, <laughs> but I do know the word for pew, so I'm going to give myself a pat on the back for that here's, one. Here's a test. What do, the, the little booklet, what, what were those called? Not the Bible. The No, they'd be in the pews. The Missalettes. Oh, yeah. Missalettes. Woo! I've never even heard that word. <laughs> but yeah, I did leave in eighth grade. <laughs> yeah. So you are a good Catholic. Mm-hmm. I had my first communion. Yeah. So um, 
pick up with the uh, where, where we left off, uh, childhood memory. Uh, did, did you feel bonded to your sister? Was she uh, accepting of you being uh, different than the stereotypical boy? Yeah, um, and my sister and I, like, we were, like, each other's first best friends, and, like, we are very, very different people, um, and our lives, like, have taken super different directions, but we're still close. Um, but I remember, like, this... She, when she was younger, like, in dealing with, um, kind of, like, coming to terms with, like, being adopted and, like, which I think is also a super traumatic thing to do. My parents were always, like, honest with her about it from the time she could, like, comprehend it and with us. And they had an open adoption, so, like, her birth parents were around. So she, like, struggled with gaining a lot of weight when she was younger. So, like, I feel like she and I always had this thing where we would be, like, you know, awful to each other and say, like, horrible things. But then... Like, if anyone else said one of the things to the other one, we'd, like, punch them in the face. Like, we kind of had this thing that, like, if anyone went near, like, calling me gay or whatever, she would just be, like, you know, ready to throw down. And if anyone called her fat, like, I was ready to do that, too. Even though then, like, cut to five minutes later, we'd both be calling each other those names. (laughs) It's uh, fucked upedly beautiful. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Awfulsome is is the word we we like to use. Um, So what's the next piece or phase or thing you want to share um yeah so i I don't know so i guess like on the continuum of life and mental health so like from the time that i was young like my family going off of what i've already told you um we would like be in family therapy a lot um but whose uh insistence I actually don't remember. That's actually a really good question that I should. I'm actually curious now. Yeah. I don't. Maybe it was the town. Yeah, the street. <laughs> the yeah. neighbors formed an association and yeah. asked us to go. Um, but yeah, so we'd go and like it would be, you know, um, volatile. And then we'd kind of like stop going. And then, but I just think I like always remember being in therapy, like for as long as I can remember. And my parents always talk about that. I was like very moody, but like not in like a, you know, like attitude way, but more just like would be even from the time that I was really little, like my parents said that there was a side of me that was like very serious and like dark and like depressive. Um, and so by the time that I was in middle school, I had like my own therapist who was like also kind of the family therapist who I like really did not like and was kind of reminded me of like an evil version of Ellen DeGeneres mm-hmm. um and so we'd like have a lot of so she would cut you down while you danced yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> she'd like throw a plush armchair at me and not give me a check at the end of the segment um <laughs> but so she and I would just like clash so much, but then like, I think in sixth grade I went on antidepressants. Um, and then by seventh grade I'd like been hospitalized for overdosing on those. Um, did the antidepressants ever help? They did. uh, I don't know. Like at that time, I'm not sure that they did. Now I'm on antidepressants and like love them. Um, Mm -hmm. and happened for like four years. But I think that like growing up as a kid, you're like, so, you just see, like, mental health interventions in any form, I think, as being so punitive. And, like, mm-hmm. I think that when you're, like, a little kid, all you really want is to be, like, quote-unquote normal. Or, like, and so anytime people are, like, you are different and you need this thing to make you better, or, like, you know, you take it as, like, something is wrong with you. So I think I was always very um, 
resistant to antidepressants in that way. So I feel like from like sixth grade through being 22, I was always like on and off of antidepressants. And then obviously once high school came, I was like drinking too much mm-hmm. while on them, which is worse, I think, than yeah. just not being on them. Uh, so was there something that triggered the suicide attempt? Yeah, so I think that probably is like, I mean, I don't think it's like coincidental that that's around the time of like puberty and like sexual awakening. And mm-hmm. um, the actual trigger was that I prank called the mayor of Syracuse, who was like the father of one of my classmates and got caught. So that was like the, and you know, got grounded or whatever. And but so that was like the immediate trigger. But I think the like underlying trigger was definitely like being you know, 13 or whatever, and realizing I was gay and just kind of being like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> what was the prank? The prank, um, the prank was, like, pretty fucked up. Um, I had the feeling. Yeah, so, I, it was like I was at a birthday party and we were all kind of going around a circle doing prank phone calls, and then mine was that I prank called the mayor and, like, said that the, I didn't say a real school, but kind of just said, like, at the school and said that the gym teacher was like getting too close to my child and like pretended to be a parent so it was very it was one of those things that you're just like you even say aloud when you're older and you're just like what the fuck like and when you're 12 that's so like funny to you and now you're like that's so awful on so many levels I think the most awful part is that a 13 year old could think they would sound like an adult right yeah there's a gym teacher who's exactly <laughs> and that uh, yeah you know like no star six seven um <laughs> unfortunately um but yeah that was <laughs> not my finest moment do you think there was anything subconsciously that that made you think of that prank well that was like i mean that was like a rumor about a gym teacher at our school and i okay. feel like which i don't think is an uncommon rumor yeah. about gym teachers at lots of schools um because, I mean, they're kind of, you know, get close. Um, but then I think, too, that it was just, like, part of my personality, especially at that age, was being, like, the one who would kind of, like, take it the farthest. Yeah. So, like, it started by being prank calling, like, Taco Bell and saying we found, like, a finger in our cheesy bean and rice burrito or whatever. And then it just very quickly escalated to this thing that was, like, really, you know, slanderous. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, so... What can you remember from your decision to try to uh, overdose on them? I think the thing that really freaks me out to think about with that day is like, so I wound up like going home the next day and my parents were just kind of like seriously. And it was like awkward because as I was saying, my dad was like the columnist and he had to like work with the mayor and like, Mm -hmm. um, I went to school with his son. So it was kind of like he was like you really have to like my punishment was probably that I was like grounded for a few days and like had to apologize which you know I mean just everything when you're 13 is like the end of the world Mm -hmm. um but I also remember like I'd been reading I think it was that I was reading riding in cars with boys and one of the scenes in that was actually that she like overdoses on Advil or something um and I remember just going to my room and just being kind of like fine for a second and then just like thinking about it and then kind of committing to it and like I don't I even I remember like getting Sprite or something and then just like taking pills and like the thing that I always find very like jarring about it was like first of all that I was like kind of calm while doing it and then also just like that like drinking Sprite is so like childlike 
and then while doing this thing that in certain ways is a very juvenile, impulsive, knee-jerk reaction, but is also such a like heavy, dark decision that you associate with like... I mean, I guess you don't really associate it with adults because a lot of teenagers, yeah. unfortunately, either try to or do kill themselves. But, um, yeah. I think just like the like combination of like handfuls of pills with you know like sugary sweet sprite yeah. is like very bizarre yeah did your parents know well yeah so like i literally took a like um not a jar of pill, a bottle of pills and then immediately was calm until that point and then like you know flipped out and ran downstairs and my dad took me to the hospital and i had to like drink liquid charcoal which I like imminently uh, projectile vomited all over the floor. And it was just like very, and like one of the, I mean, Syracuse is small. It's like one of the nurses was like the mother of a classmate. It was just like, which I think is scary when you like have this thing that you're like, I want to not talk about this. And like now this person's mom knows. Yeah. Um, Was it ever, uh, did word ever get out? Actually, no. I think I might have told like maybe like one friend about that at mm-hmm. the time. And they were just kind of like, Oh, like, and we were like, I remember being on a ski lift and like telling him and it's kind of, that's like, the okay. best place to do it. Yeah. And he was like, okay, yes. let's do like yes. this trail. <laughs> Bad news. <laughs> Bad news should always be, uh, broken at a height. Yeah. Where somebody is literally unable to leave you exactly, <laughs> or kill Bro- themselves. Yes. Broken elevator. Uh, I'm carrying your baby. <laughs> Or I'm carrying a baby and it's not yours. <laughs> um, how did your parents handle it in the aftermath? Um, I remember like having to go to a like family wide psychiatric evaluation after, um, and I think they were just like, I don't really. I feel like at that point they probably really didn't know what to do. Um, like, I think I kept going to my therapist for like a little, but yeah, it just kind of, I don't think they knew what to do, to be honest, which like, I don't blame them. I don't think I would know what to do either. And, uh, would it be fair to say that it was something that, uh, nobody really wanted to bring up again, including you? Yeah. Especially for like that time being, because like, I mean, then like high school came and that, happened again like in high school i very quickly Mm -hmm. had like a really scary binge drinking issue and like my freshman sophomore and junior years of high school i was like hospitalized for alcohol poisoning all three of those years and like the first time got like hypothermia because i was outside sledding when it happened and then the second time i actually like again took a bottle of pills while being drunk and drank mouthwash as well so it was like and after that, I went to rehab inpatient for a month, which was my sweet 16 present. Um, and um, so, yeah, so then I think it, after that, it became a little bit more of like a conversational topic because it was like, this is not an isolated incident. Like all of these things are recurring behaviors. And that was really alarming. Did you uh, agree with uh, your parents that there was a drinking problem? Um, no. Like, which is so, it's so bizarre now once you get past things and you like look back and you're like, 
actually unable to even like revisit the mindset of how you convinced yourself that when you're like 16 years old and you've been hospitalized three times for drinking, that that's not a drinking problem. Yeah. And even that I went to rehab and was like, I wasn't like, oh, I'm an alcoholic. I need help. I'm like, okay, maybe they'll get off my back if I like go to rehab for a month. And I was wanted like a break from high school and like all this stuff. Yeah. So like rehab was the obvious solution. Um, yeah. In rural Pennsylvania, um, I didn't even go to like Malibu Promises or whatever. When did you uh, when did you admit to yourself that there was a problem? When I was like twenty two, so like seven years later. Okay. I think when I it, well, I don't know. I think there were points where I was like, I'm having a problem with drinking, but I don't think. I think it was harder. It was so much easier to do that than to be like, I have a drinking problem. Yes. And then I was kind of like, okay, like I'll, because there were a lot of periods where I would take like two months off or whatever. And it was kind of like, you know, like I was like, okay, like did my time. I can drink again or whatever. Like I'd kind of like reset and then would start again. And a lot of times it was like weird because then when I would start again, I'd be so conscious of it that I would Mm. be better about it for like a few months. And then I would just kind of like let go again and be a hot mess. I th- I think like one of the big um <sighs> difficulties for an untreated alcoholic to see is that they think their problem is that they need to make different choices instead of realizing they've lost the power of choice right and that they need help through the form of human connection more practical way of living, et cetera, et cetera. And especially if it's a periodic drinker, like it sounds, um, Mm -hmm. you, you would be. And also like I stopped drinking when I was 22. So all of my drinking was confined to like late middle school, high school and college, which is like a time, all those environments are binge drinking cultures or like, Mm -hmm. It's exciting because you're getting away with something. Yeah, and I think that like a lot of people who still drink now probably can look back at their drinking in college or like their drug use or whatever and be like, "Whoa, yeah." And like a lot of people like turned the corner and were fine, but like it just wasn't like I think now in the real world when like college felt like not the real world. Like it's weird that I even just said that, but like if you were being hospitalized that much, I think it would very quickly be so much more jarring where in college and high school it was like it was jarring and I know it's not normal but it was like much people accepted it so much more and some people it would be a badge of honor that you know I party that hard that you know they had to hospitalize me right Um, well and I think that to the thing that I did with so like I was also like my high school valedictorian and I was like you know really crazy when it came to school and I like would always still kind of do the stuff I needed to do. And like, I got into Brown and like went there and wasn't like killing it academically, but I was like, fine. And so I think I was always able to like be fine enough that I was kind of able to tell people to like fuck off when they were trying to like intervene and try to, how could I have a problem? I got an A. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm like, how could I have a problem? I literally did better in high school than everyone else around me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The, the high functioning alcoholic is, you know, that is a, a difficult, uh, a difficult um, truth for right. for that person to see, and the outside world. Mm-hmm. Um, when I shared with friends of mine that uh, I was sober uh, and that I was an alcoholic, people, friends that I drank with, uh, 
99% of them were like, no way, mm-hmm. no way. But if you're that person, you know, because you know what you're like 24 hours. Yeah, and going <laughs> back day. to what you were saying about like rules and stuff, like I also had a lot of issues with like drugs and like especially prescription pills. Like I was really addicted to Xanax when mm-hmm. I was mostly while I was studying abroad in New Delhi in India. Um, and like I also had some like issues with cocaine and like it was like, I kept being able to like, I was like, okay, I'm not going to take Xanax anymore. I have a problem. Like, okay, I'm not going to do cocaine anymore. I have a problem with that. Okay. Like I keep getting alcohol poisoning, but it's only when I'm drinking like liquor. So that's Ixnade. And then like I got rid of, I guess liquor was the only thing I was going to say. I got rid of beer, but I don't mm-hmm. think I did. Um, or if I did, it was because I stopped eating gluten. Um, and, um, so, but it was like easy to like give all these things up, but it was like, I somehow there was like alcohol was always still there or even like I would even I like after I graduated I had this like really scary night with uh when I broke up with my ex-boyfriend where I like just became completely blacked out in New York and freaked out at him and like tried to run into traffic in Manhattan like on a highly trafficked street and um which would be every street yeah (laughs) that's true (laughs) one of those streets with lots of traffic um and then after that, I started like seeing an alcohol therapist in New York who um, I like really didn't like at the time because he was like calling me on my shit. But um, he and I would like make all these rules. Like I was like, okay, like he'd be like, okay, Friday and Saturday you can drink and you can have like two drinks each night. And I was like, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, like I'm 22, like I need Thursdays and like nobody drinks two drinks. So like I raised it to like three and he was kind of like, okay, like you're kind of like being too much already. And then like immediately I went out and like drank on like a Tuesday or like went to like away for the weekend and like blacked out both nights and like was definitely having, you know, like double digits drinks Mm -hmm. and telling this guy I was having like three and I would see him and be like, yeah, it's fine. Like, it's going well. So it's, like, really, I think, just scary in that sense, like, the cognitive dissonance and, like, the disconnect you yeah. can have with that. And, like, yeah, going back to what you are saying, it's just, like, not, it becomes a point where it's not, I mean, it's always a choice in the sense that, like, I think sometimes I'm scared to say it's not a choice because, like, for people who are in that place now, it is, you can get out of it. But you definitely are out of control. Like, especially the second that you make the choice to like pick up alcohol at all. And I think it's like so hard for people who don't have that issue to understand, but that you literally from the second you put alcohol like in your mouth are just like out of control Yeah, or any drug or anything you're addicted Mm -hmm. to. Uh, let's talk about your sexuality. Uh, when was the first time, uh, you realized that you had uh, feelings for, uh, boys? I think like sixth grade um, from like, you know, like watching TV or something. I feel mm-hmm. like I was kind of kept being like, why am I like paying attention to like this character and not this character? Like, mm-hmm. and I don't even remember like the exact moment, but I yeah, just remember like through those types of experiences that kind of like leading into that. Mm-hmm. And then I became like sexually active when I was 15. What do you remember thinking or feeling when it dawned on you that you were attracted i remember being distressed like and um like i don't think i was like totally surprised just because of what i was talking about earlier with like always having a feeling of like being kind of different from whatever like Mm -hmm. mainstream 
young men or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, um, I definitely think I was like hoping it was a phase or like, mm-hmm. yeah, I just think I was like confused and like mm-hmm. overwhelmed and distressed. And did uh, self hatred ever present itself? Yeah, I mean, definitely because of that definitely. issue. Because you were, you grew up in an era when it was starting to become public opinion was starting. The majority of public opinion seems like it was starting to be more tolerant. Right, and I think it's so weird now because I like live in New York and I went to Brown, which is like very gay and very mm-hmm. liberal. And I think I've like built this very gay, LGBTQ friendly um, life for myself, and also like so much stuff is self selecting. Like the news I read, or like the TV personalities I watch, or whatever, are all of that um, point of view. But yeah, so I think sometimes it's even hard to remember that. Like when I was growing up, I like didn't know if I'd ever be able to be like legally married or what's that like? I mean, I think it's like obviously like, um, dehumanizing because it's like marriage. I feel like for so many people, it's such a like focal mm-hmm. point of life. Like I think from the time you're little, you think about like you play house and you like, I mean, all that shit was like, so heteronormative. Like it's like you play house and there's the mom and the dad and like the kids and like mm-hmm. you buy toys and it's that you watch like, the TV shows of the 90s were that. There wasn't Modern Family. I think, like, Will and Grace probably actually did kind of start later on. But even, like, uh, or not, like, when I was, like, 10 or something. But then also even, like, I remember watching Sex and the City recently and being, like, wow, the, like, portrayals of LGBTQ people were so fucked up. And, like, the people who were making these shows were, like, giving themselves a pat on the back because they were doing it and, like, having gay characters or, like trans characters or lesbian characters, but they were, like, really, like, stereotypical Mm -hmm. portrayals. And I also think a lot of times they did this thing of, like, presenting, especially, like, gay men as accessories to women that were not, like, actual people with, like, complex feelings or, like, their own wants and needs, but, like, comic relief Mm -hmm. who was there to tell you which pair of shoes was ugly. Yeah, the the uh, finger-wagging guy who boils it down with sass. Right. Yeah. And like I was watching one of my friends texted me the other day and was like watching a sex in the city episode. And she was like, they literally just referred to like trans women as half man, half woman. Like, and I think at the time, like, I'm like, I feel like if a show did that now, there'd be like a flood of Mm -hmm. think pieces and like media being like, you can't say that. And like, this is why where at the time I feel like so many people like probably didn't even think twice or just laughed. Yeah. Uh, talk to the listener who's listening right now who doesn't believe in same-sex marriage. Hmm. Well, yeah, I think that, um, I mean, obviously my, like, I think this is too, such a product of what we're just talking about. Like my, inclination is to immediately get very like aggressive and rude but I mean I think that the thing to me is like I just really don't it's hard for me to understand how you could be so passionate about something that doesn't impact you negatively but impacts so many other people positively and I think that um 
like the right to love people, whoever you want to, or how whoever. And I don't even, I don't even like saying want because it's not a choice. Like people who are gay or bi or trans or whatever, um, that's how they're born and that's who they are. And it's having laws that are selectively applied to punish them for being how they are. There's just it's unacceptable and it's cruel. And I think that like if those people have the opposition for religious reasons, I think they need to read their religious texts a little bit closer and like, instead of focusing on, you know, loosely worded old Testament paragraphs where there's one to argue a point, I think they should instead look at the sentiment of all religious texts, which is usually to treat other people how you'd want to be treated and to love everyone. And like, so basically stop cherry picking. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, the Old Testament has got some super fucked up shit in it. it you yeah. know, the Old Testament like gives the thumbs up to slavery, right? Uh, so, uh, and it's literally a thumb up in the uh, in the in the <laughs> book. It's crudely sketched, but it is a right. It's and a it's thumbs like, up, and then a hang ten on the other page. Uh, well, yeah, it's like and there's like infanticide, and there's like all this shit that you're like, that's what you're like living your life based on. Like, yeah. okay, well, I hope the plagues happen to you then, if you're gonna like pick all these things. <laughs> You know, I, I, I think the teachings of uh, Jesus are beautiful. You mm-hmm. know, they're, they're um, and I guess I, I have trouble understanding how somebody could extrapolate that love-based message right. to this other thing. But Right, and when you look at, like, it's a, whatever, I mean, I don't, I'm going to make up a number. It's Let's say it's a thousand pages, like, 990 of them are kind of, like, beating you over the head with this point of, like, love other people, like, Mm -hmm. help people who are less fortunate than you, um, whatever. And then people will, like, form this opinion literally based on, like, whatever, what's it called? Like the... Fox News. Sodom. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. totally Fox News. But, yeah, like, I think at the core, all of the world's major religions can be very positive. And I think that just the problem becomes when you focus on these little things and also aren't able to like listen to what people are saying and mm-hmm. cross compare like what you think is your value with like does it actually impact you whatever you're saying and like does it impact other people and right. why would you ever put something that doesn't impact you right. your opinion on that over like how it would positively impact yes. other people yeah uh, somebody who uh, is against gay marriage i absolutely support their choice to not marry a gay person right yeah same uh so give me uh a sense of what the the next phase is and kind of you're beginning to understand yourself and make peace with who you are who you want to be yeah, so I think that, so when I was, after that sort of talking about earlier, um, with like the traffic and then um, working with that therapist, it was really weird because like, I mean, I think of my, it's easy to, when you're like an alcoholic to like look at that phase of life and be like, this is my problem. Um, so I stopped drinking like a few weeks after that like so basically like I stopped drinking for a month after the traffic situation then I 
agreed with my therapist to do that, but I was just saying again about like the three nights for two drinks or whatever. And I did that for two weeks and just kept blacking out and just woke up one morning and was like, I can't do this anymore. Like I really believed I was going to die. I was like, at this point I've like been hospitalized so many times and have been to rehab inpatient, outpatient, like have tried to kill myself, have like accidentally almost died. And I was just like, I'm really going to die. And like, it wasn't worth it. And, um, so I think that like, it's easy when you read a book about drinking or like whatever to be like, okay, like happy ending, like they stopped drinking. But I think what was really like crazy about that period is I did stop drinking and like in certain ways was, um, did, I felt much less out of control in the sense that I, you know, wasn't drunk anymore. So, and when you're drunk, it's easier to do crazier shit and like feel like you kind of have an excuse. Um, but I think what was really jarring at that point, because I'd been drinking so heavily and just like abusing drugs for so many years was that I was like, wow, I kind of like thought that I'd stop drinking and it'd be like this thing where I'm like, okay, I'm happy now. And I'm like a highly functional person, whatever, where I was like so depressed. And like, I kind of was like, okay, keep pushing through this. But then I just realized that my baseline was like very depressive, which makes sense because before I drank, I had issues with depression. Um, so then I think that was really helpful though, to be at that point, because like for the first time in so during all those years of like heavy drinking and abusing drugs, I'd also been like on and off all these antidepressants. And it was like, I don't like this. It's like making me tired, but I wasn't like acknowledging that I'd had like 12 drinks the night before, which is also probably contributing to feeling tired. Um, yeah, but trying to judge antidepressants while you're abusing uh, uh, drugs is, uh, or recreational uh, drugs or, or alcohol <clears throat> uh, is futile. Right. And until I got sober, I didn't realize, oh, th- my meds work right. when I'm not having 12 beers mm-hmm. uh, a night. You know, when I'm not putting gallons of depressants into my body, mm-hmm. my antidepressants work. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that was like such a nice moment that yeah. I had to, um, where I started taking antidepressants and was actually like able to see the difference. Um, what did you think or feel in that moment when you saw that truth? Well, I think it was really refreshing in the sense that like, I think... I feel like when you talk about like self medicating, it's easy to like not think that you do it because you think of so many things as behaviors that are so conscious. And like, I think that and I had, fun. I'm just having fun. Right. And right. I think that I'd always thought of self medicating as somebody literally being like, I am drinking alcohol to feel better in the way that you'd be like, I'm taking Benadryl because I'm having an allergic reaction. Yes. Like that. It was like a very like laser focused, <laughs> response and then I was like oh well I have been like self-medicating for all these like underlying feelings and like yeah mental states of being um and yeah nobody says let's let's get together to kill our personal pain right yeah you're (laughs) yeah you don't call it going out group therapy (laughs) even though that's often the aim um but so I think it was really nice to like be medicating in a way that I had been doing with alcohol, with, you know, a prescription drug that was also being monitored by a doctor instead of, like, lying to a doctor about it. It's amazing. When you give them all the information they need to help you, it's amazing how much better they can help you. Right. 
No, and it's very nice to be at a point in life where when you go to the doctor and they give you the survey, you're not like writing a fictional book on it. Yeah. Um, Do you use a pen name when you uh, fill out the fake survey? (laughs) Three drinks. (laughs) Um, So what's what what uh, is the next kind of arc of getting you to where you are now? Um, Any vignettes you want to share that um, you feel are um, fitting for your story or just amusing or heartbreaking or baffling? Well, so I guess like the next arc is kind of like continuing on with um, what I was just talking about with like kind of like rebuilding or like I don't even know if rebuilding is the right thing to say because I think that between like eating disorders and drinking problems and like being promiscuous or whatever, I was able to like kind of avoid all these like scary vulnerabilities that are part of growing up. And so like for however many years, like close to 20 years, like all of my coping mechanisms were these things. And I think that like, that's been so much of the past few years of my life has been like being like, what are, my new coping mechanisms and like when can you just not even really use coping mechanisms and when is a coping mechanism just dealing with the issue or like, Mm -hmm. you know, so I think that like being vulnerable in that sense has been like a journey that I'm still on. And I think that like one of the things that I've realized sometimes like as a rebound, like I feel like when I think of myself as like a drunk person, I would like, say whatever I felt I would like have these super dark thoughts that I would just say or I would like burst into tears oh you're one of those drunks yeah and so now this scary thing about being sober is like do you realize how many times you've killed the rest of our buzzes I know (laughs) I know yeah I had to be brought home a lot Um, I was just a piece of shit you don't love you really knew me you don't love me but like probably even like crazier than that yeah um (laughs) And so I think that one of the things that now I've been dealing with that I think I get the impression a lot of people who have dealt with like addictions do is like not um, having it be like a pendulum that swings too far the opposite way where now like I find that sometimes it's like I never really felt like a very repressed person and now sometimes in sobriety I'm like more repressed just because I feel like I have less like it's harder for me to like talk about how I feel when it's not tied to a crisis because so much of my life kind of was or lubricated by right eight beers right yeah and it's like how figuring out like what an appropriate emotional reaction to something is because like before it was so disastrous or then now I'm like probably sometimes like I'm just not going to react to this thing so it's like that's been an interesting part of being sober I heard somebody say in a support group meeting one time, this person said, my reaction is always immediate, uh, inappropriate, and uh, overly intense. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think a lot of people can relate to that because I I think a lot of people think that the problem is the liquor or the heroin or the shopping or the cheating when it's really the feelings underneath. That's Mm -hmm. just the that's just the these other things are just the cab that you know get you out of town for five or six hours right or that like you know you have these feelings and then you like do especially with like substances rather i mean i guess like cheating and stuff applies to this too but like where you do this thing and then 
or like you express yourself and it's as you were just saying like over the top and like mm. so extreme but then you can just blame it on that thing like i feel yes. like and you're still saying things that you kind of mean or like within your hyperbolic you know like verbal diarrhea there are like truths mm-hmm. but then like those truths you're able to just then hide again the next day because you're like, I was just drunk and I was being crazy. And people, yeah. especially if they were bothered by the truth, like want to believe that as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My uh, roommate in college on his uh, 21st birthday, he got really drunk and he called me a pug-nosed fat face. <laughs> I told him the next day. Uh, he was horrified and, uh, he was like, oh man, I was so drunk. And I go, yeah. And I know I have a pug nose and a fat face, so (laughs) don't sweat it. (laughs) It's nothing I haven't told myself. Uh, share if you would, uh, if you can think of a moment where you had a sexual experience and you didn't feel shame or any negative emotion where you felt um, this is who I am and what I'm doing is beautiful and feels good? Um, Yeah, I think it like really took until being like 21, no, I guess 22 for me to feel that way. And I became sexually active when I was 15. Like I feel like all of my, I mean, I had issues with um, like delayed I mean, not even delayed ejaculation, but I had sexual dysfunction issues in that, like, it wasn't an erectile dysfunction issue, but it was just that, like, you couldn't I would, come. Yeah, and I just kind of, like, didn't feel anything. Like, I would just totally, like, kind of shut down. So, like, I, which started this pattern of, like, um, kind of, like, having sexual relationships that weren't about sex. Like, they were about, like, totally about being, like, I guess, like, you could say in a way, like, kind of like a conquest, but like, I feel like when you say conquest, it makes it sound like you're like, I'm on a conquest. So like validation, would that be a better? Yeah. Like it was, it was a conquest for emotional validation. And so like, I had all these relationships where like, if I would kind of just like have sex with somebody and like, wouldn't really mean anything. And then would be just about reinforcing like the belief that like somebody wanted me. And then like also, but so, so many of them were like once because I was just like, that was like weird. And um, they were just like very like theatrical in the sense that like a lot of times I'd like feel weird about the ejaculation thing, so I'd like lie and pretend I did or like blame it on like a medication or whatever. Um, when it was really just that I was like mentally shutting down, mm-hmm. and so it, it. Did you experience any kind of trauma uh, as a kid? I don't honestly. I don't know. Um, once when I was blacked out, I told my parents I did, but like right now I don't. Okay. have a memory of that but i mean i feel like i don't know like i haven't actually read all that much about like sexual dysfunction but like i kind of feel like it points to that because mm-hmm. like i was it was even beyond that like i remember like feeling like very like flinchy when people would touch me so mm-hmm. i think that like that kind of i was able to like really work through that with my ex-boyfriend who was my first boyfriend which mm-hmm. was when i was 22 and it was like a you know, uphill battle. Like it took months. Yeah. So uh, continuing, uh, let's go back to the coping tools that you've picked up and where you are today, unless I'm missing something. No. Okay. 
What's the first coping uh, mechanism that you started using uh, where you remember thinking, wow, this, <laughs> this makes sense? This makes life a little uh, less dramatic. And yeah, so I think like the first and primary one, which is probably very similar to how you feel with like the podcast, mm-hmm. is writing has really been the best thing because I think first of all, like it's forced. Well, actually, therapy's probably been the best one because that's mm-hmm. I think is the best thing for like having to say things out loud that you're normally thinking, mm-hmm. and like being able to be like, oh, this is how I feel now that I've like said it out loud. Because sometimes when you're just saying it in your head, you're like cycling a thought or it's easy to like convince yourself of things and other people. So I think that especially when it's not being judged by the person you're sharing it with, that's right. a, a really connective moment. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and then the second has been writing. And I think that like one of the coolest things about it, which is probably like, again, how you are with the podcast is like when you talk about or like writing about something and being like, this experience is so specific to me. And like, it's kind of like this thing that, you know, I've spent 20 years trying to hide and then having like, 50 people email me and be like, I'm with you. I like have dealt with that and people you didn't expect. Mm-hmm. And then even like the coolest thing about that, I think is like when you think an issue is like, let's say like an totally alcohol related, but then somebody else is like, I've never had an issue with like addiction, but I've had issues with like shame in this way too, or mm-hmm. like whatever. Um, and then my third thing is like pretty basic of me, but, um, Yoga has become like really helpful. Mm. <laughs> like I really... talk, talk about why people might might be uh, laughing uh, about that because I, uh, I I think because I called I, it basic. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah, I missed that. What I, I slipped it in. Um, well, just like kind of like the like you know like there's the phrase like basic bitch now which would kind of be somebody who like has like starbucks and like ugg boots and like whatever so like basic would just be kind of like very stereotypical behaviors that people kind of pretend are nuanced maybe like i got you so you'd be like I yeah you. i like i do this crazy thing like i love yoga and then everyone's like yeah duh everyone loves yoga yeah. <laughs> or you're like yeah i just discovered iced coffee and it's like yeah so did everyone else Okay. But you kind of like make it your thing and you're like, you're you. literally like reading the popular yes. cultural checking points. Okay. Um, <laughs> talk about what you get from, from doing yoga. Um, well, I think it's like really, I guess like interesting on a few levels. Like I think first of all, it's like nice to do something like yoga where they're like, I mean, it's kind of like when you're playing Twister and you're younger and they're like, move your right foot to the red dot and you have to like focus on doing that. So you can't really like focus on something else, but even, you know, more complicated. Um, so you really kind of just are forced to like disengage from life. Like I feel like... So it's like Twister if you occasionally farted. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Very much so for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I think that even when you're like running or something, it's still easy to like think about things where I feel like when you're doing yoga, like you kind of can't. Yeah. Especially if you're like being actively engaged. Like if you're going to like child's pose, I'm sure you can still like cycle obsessive thoughts and stuff. Yeah. But like if you're like actually doing the things they're telling you, you would fall on your face. Yeah. And then I think beyond that, like I feel like I never as somebody who did have like body issues and like I didn't really talk about this, but like uh kept you know, hinting at it, but like had a lot of like issues with like bulimia in high school and college and I think that like it's been really nice to like have an experience and even like going back to like the sex issues and like kind of like that emotional detachment from your body. Like, I think it's nice 
to do yoga and like f- feel connected to it and like feel in control of it and and see of, how beautiful it is yeah, with the things that it can do right and i think that like that's the other thing that i'm trying to work on is like and i feel like we were talking about this a little bit before but like how sometimes it's hard like i feel like sometimes i'm so it's hard for me to like talk about things like being like yeah it's like cool to see how beautiful your body is because you feel like corny or whatever or mm-hmm. like disingenuous and but that is how i feel from it and i think that it's also like a community that really embraces people like looking at themselves in that way and like loving themselves which i think is we all need activities that push us to do that absolutely um talk briefly about the um eating disorder is that something that's under control today um what did it look like at its worst yeah so i think that like I mean, it's interesting talking about this because I feel like it all kind of hit at once. And, like, I feel like that really started around the same time that I started drinking. And it was, like, very um, intertwined. And, like, for all of high school, like, I was a runner and would, like, exercise a ton. But would also, like, just binge Mm -hmm. and then would throw up. And, like, would, you know, like, after school, like, I remember, like, leaving school and getting these, like, giant cookies we sold and just, like, going home. And that just being, like kind of like my thing and like the thing that I did by myself that felt like it was like relieving stress and it just went on for like a long time and would you you, when you would buy the cookie and you were on your way to eat it would you feel already high a little bit like your adrenaline start going yeah and I think that like one of the things that's really weird and I guess all this is related like binge drinking and binge eating and like even now when I'm drinking like water or something, I like realize that I drink so much faster than other people. Or like when food comes, I eat so much faster than other people. And like, I still have that like anxious inclination to just like gorge on things. So I think that like, it's definitely better, but I think that like most issues, like it's something that I have to think about every day. And I also like, I work from home and if I, so if like if I don't pay attention sometimes I find that I like avoid eating or whatever and like mm-hmm. so it's something that I have to be like you have to eat right now or like this is what's healthy and normal to do um but yeah and I found that one thing that was kind of always happened with like the combination of like drinking and eating things is I always felt like I needed like a problem to have that was kind of like like when I I remember in college I stopped drinking my junior year for like two months and like immediately went to the gym and like ran nine miles and then was like kind of just like became focused on like not eating and exercising it was just like I needed someplace to like put that energy Mm -hmm. and like in a weird way probably even convinced myself that it was like healthy Mm -hmm. and it's that's been bizarre but I think that like one of the um, parts that's good scary about growing up but also good is that like you kind of realize when you're in the adult world like your friends aren't living on top of you you're not living with your parents and you're like if I like if I wanted to sit at my house all day and drink wine and throw up and whatever, I could and there's nobody who could really stop me. So I think that like the best thing about being a quote unquote adult um, is that you kind of have to take the responsibility for that. And like that desire to want to be OK mm-hmm. has to come from you where like growing up, I think it was like so easy to like feel out of control and then like have these like really crazy issues and have people like Mm -hmm. intervening and like the interventions begin to like feel like the people who intervene are the people who care about you or whatever. And it's like this cycle of like 
really acting out and like having people intervene and that proves that you're like loved. And so I think it's nice to like not to be given the freedom to have your shitty idea played out completely. Right. Yeah. To see, Hey, how'd that go? Yeah. Not so good. Yeah, totally. And to like have to deal with those repercussions yourself, but also just to like have the interventions come from yourself. Because I think that when you have like mental health issues and like have for Mm -hmm. so long, you like kind of have to be constantly like, Mm -hmm your own parent a little bit or something and like have interventions with yourself where you're literally like, what the fuck are you doing? And like kind of rein it in and like, just take care of yourself. Uh, To wrap it up, if you, if, if you would share a moment, if you can think of one where you're learning to be vulnerable, um, helped you or felt like a breakthrough and you connecting to a person in a way that you'd never done it before. Yeah. I think like the way that I've always struggled the most with being vulnerable is like romantically. And so I feel like when I was, I don't know, like I think that like the fear of like rejection or whatever, that like inadequacy kind of like fueled that. And like with my first relationship, like I really did kind of for part of it, um, become more vulnerable and like I feel like that allowed me to like have a relationship where like that's an area of my life that like then once that ended I think that like as I was saying earlier sometimes the pendulum swings too far and I kind of just like shut down that area of my life so that's something that I'm again working on and like realizing why it's I don't know sometimes I'm like I'm focusing on my career like blah 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 but that's like deflection and so that's an area of my life that I'm again working on and having to remind myself about the rewards of being vulnerable in that area and it's like interesting that like this right now is easier for me than like being vulnerable on a date you know what I mean like for a lot of people this would be like their biggest fear but for me I'm like I don't this is fun um and where I'm like you know dating somebody and being honest sounds like you know, to some people like getting a cage of rats put on their head. Um, so I'm working on it. Uh, anything else you'd like to share? Um, not that I can think of. Thank you all. Sorry that I wasn't looking at you. Seamus curse, everybody. And thank you guys so much for coming out. Thank you for continuing to support the podcast. It means, it means so, so much to me. Thank you. Really, really enjoyed talking to uh, Seamus. Such a bright guy. And uh, yeah, check his book out. It's called Shitfaced. We'll put a link to that on the uh, on the website. Uh, let me tell you about Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulate your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that-sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend a third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. I think those of us that listen to this podcast and uh, or participate in it, uh, it's probably closer to half half our life or one one-hundredth of our life for those of us that have insomnia. 
they sent me a Casper mattress, and uh, I love it. I slept on it last night. I slept, uh, I'm tempted to say slept like a baby, but sometimes babies uh, don't sleep too well. So I slept on it like a, a, uh, like a very satisfied adult male. How's that, how does that sound? Uh, yeah, it was uh, super comfortable, and I didn't even eat ice cream before I went to, uh, went to bed. And, uh, yeah, what, what they say is true. It was easy to unbox. And if you think that I'm just saying this because they're an advertiser, go look at the, uh, the reviews on Amazon. It's, gets amazing reviews. Anyway, start, start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get 50 bucks towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash mental and using mental at checkout. That's casper.com slash mental and then the offer code mental for 50 bucks off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. Let's, uh, let's also give, uh, give some love to Quip Electric Toothbrush. I've been using one now for about a month and a half and, uh, it's awesome. And you know, the holidays around the season. Here's, here's some thoughts, uh, why it'd be a good gift. Uh, number one, uh, it'd be a gift that people would actually use every day, not something that'll just get thrown in a drawer. Uh, number two, you don't have to go to a store to get it. Quip uh, can ship directly to your door or theirs. And number three, it's that perfect $25 price point for those secret Santa you struggle with every year. I always, I I never know. I always hate when I get paired with somebody and I know nothing about them and I'm not interested in knowing anything about them. Uh, But listen, with Quip, you don't have to worry about getting new brush heads or toothpaste. They're delivered right to your door on schedule. So you replace your brush on time and have better oral hygiene at an affordable price with the sleekest design you've ever seen for an electric toothbrush. And that, that ain't no lie, man. It looks like, it looks like Steve Jobs designed it minus, minus the bullying and the, and the being pushy. Uh, their toothpaste, uh, I like the taste of it. It's clean. It's mini. I think you dig it. You know, there's no charger. There's no wires. It's compact. It's light. It's sweet. Anyway, Quip starts at just 25 bucks. And right now, when you go to getquip.com slash mental, you can get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash mental. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash mental. Let's get to some soybeans. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Dave. And about his depression, he writes, It's off and on. When when it's on, it feels like there's never been another feeling in my life. Oh my God, yes. You can't even imagine what it was like to have been happy. It's just kind of a vague memory of like, you know, like a great-grandfather whose face you remember vaguely from a picnic when you were three. About his anxiety, waiting to die badly and unexpectedly. I had a panic attack one time. It was after uh, I had just moved here in 1994, moved to L.A., and uh, my uh, wife at the time, ex-wife now, um, we'd been there a week, and this massive fucking earthquake hits. And it... After the after the the quake settled down, the first time I got high, 
I had a panic attack and I was convinced that another quake was going to hit the next second. And I just laid on the bed with my heart racing and, uh, she was on the road doing stand up. And I just remember I was, I, I couldn't even pick up the phone and, and talk to anybody. I, I was just, I truly felt I was in fear for my life. I've never had one since then. Um, but whew, I, I really, have a lot of uh, empathy for those of you that experience them uh, on a regular basis. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself quit giving Sedona a hard time. I've never even been to Sedona, so uh, I really should uh, quit making fun of them because uh, I don't want me them coming after me in their guru robes. You know, you'd probably hear their sandals a mile away. Uh, I felt compelled to fill this out after hearing surveys and letters here by listeners who have cut themselves and who are afraid that the scars will keep them from making meaning, meaningful social connections or getting a job. I cut myself between the ages of 14 and 20 in very visible areas on my arms and even once on my face. At the time, I was incapable of imagining a future for myself and I was desperate to discharge my emotional pain somehow. I stumbled upon cutting myself as a temporary relief and gave no thought to the long-term consequences of doing so. I stopped when I was 20, probably because I realized that I was going to have to live a whole life past my teenage years, and it dawned on me that I would have to take my body with me, scars and all. I had a lot of deep shame about cutting, and I still hadn't healed the underlying emotional trauma that caused me to cut myself. I was scared about what people would think of me, if I'd ever find anyone who could love me, if I'd get through a job interview without being dismissed. There have been a few painful interactions. A manicurist who noticed my scars, made a face, and refused to look me in the eye. But I've had plenty more interactions with people who either didn't notice or it was a non-issue for them. I've had positive interactions, too, like the nurse at my doctor's office who very gently mentioned the scars, noticing that they were not fresh, and asked how everything was now. I told her that things were better. I was so touched by her compassion and kindness, and it still brings tears to my eyes to think of it now, ten years later. I finally found a great therapist, and then in parentheses, fifth times the charm, who helped me understand and heal the emotional pain that caused the cutting in the first place. I met a wonderful woman who knows everything about me and still loves me as I am, and we are married now. I have a great church community, and some of them know the story behind the scars. And beyond caring about me and wanting me to be okay, it's a total non-issue. I have a job where I sometimes sit at the reception desk, so I am the first person the clients see when they walk in. I've worn sleeveless shirts and let the scars on my arms be visible, and more often than not, I'll skip the makeup in the morning so the scar on my face is visible. The scars have never been mentioned by anyone in a professional capacity. I've become friends with a colleague of mine who is very talented, and I admire her very much. We went out for drinks one night and got into some deep talking about our pasts. I mentioned that I used to cut myself to cope with pain, uh, the pain that I didn't understand. She nodded and said that she used to cut as well, and that she had seen my scars and felt safe talking to me because she thought we might be the same. I know this isn't a moment per se, but maybe the happy moment for me is that I made it through the cutting years and I'm still here to fill this out. I also want anyone who has cut themselves and has scar shame to know that even though the scars are a part of the story, they are not the whole story 
and people see so much more than the marks we leave on ourselves. That is some profound, beautiful survey taken right there. Thank you so much for that. This is uh, filled out by Supernova Consciousness and about being a sex crime victim. She writes, Why am I the only one who believes I have more to offer than just my body? About experiencing racial or cultural bias, she writes, Not minority enough to not be a race traitor, not stereotypical enough to be the token. Thank you for sharing that. I see that so often under the uh, racial and cultural bias uh, on this on this survey, and a lot of uh, the the thing about not being enough of one or enough of the other, and just feeling like you're between two worlds. This is a shame and secrets survey. Uh, also, I should mention um, I got an email from somebody, and it wasn't the first time I've gotten this email where people want uh, a trigger warning before I read stuff that is. Um, kind of violent or sexual or involves, you know, combination of the two. And I kind of feel like this, that there's so much heavy shit discussed in this podcast that it'd be, I'd be giving a trigger warning all the time. But what I, maybe I should say is whenever you guys hear me read from this uh, survey, the shame and secrets survey, um, that's the one that usually has. If somebody's triggering in it, that's usually the thing that that does it for somebody. Um, so if you're worried about being triggered uh, and you hear me start to read one of those surveys, maybe um, fast forward um, through it. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Loves Moon Shadows. She is uh, bisexual. Uh, she's in her 40s and was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. Uh, when I was ages 8 to 11, my older brother would visit my bedroom at night and molest me. I, I feel oddly disconnected from it and am definitely not close with my brother now. I've taken something bad and turned it into good by taking significant measures to ensure my own young daughters have the language needed to report. They are aware of good touch, bad touch, good secrets, and bad secrets. They are not allowed to go on sleepovers, and we talk openly about our bodies being private and that they say what is acceptable for them. Uh, she's been emotionally abused but never been physically abused. My mother was and continues to be emotionally abusive to me ever since I was 19. I am 45 now. Um, that's interesting that she started when you were 19. Unfortunately, I'm now seeing this directed towards my daughters, and I've put in place significant boundaries to ensure they feel safe and loved, and this does not happen to them. I've made boundaries with my mother, and she is currently not in my life. I feel deeply liberated by not having a relationship with her. I'd be lying if I said it didn't still hurt. I'm processing through the fact that I didn't have the mother I deserve to have and that I never will. I'm using the energy to ensure I am the kind of mama my daughters deserve and take my role and responsibility seriously. 
any positive experiences with your abusers. When I was going through my divorce a couple of years ago, my mother was very supportive during this time and helped get my new life situated and was emotionally and financially very supportive. Of course, when all was said and done, this was held over my head and I was made to feel ridiculed for this help and told that she wished she had never helped me. And this happened in front of my daughters. Darkest thoughts. There are times when I long for the day that my mother will no longer walk this earth so that I don't have conflicted feelings of hating her and then wanting to attempt to win her approval that I know I will never have. I long for the day when that internal struggle finally ends and I am free of that turmoil. I fantasize about walking away from my life to go live on a beach somewhere and have no connection or responsibilities to anyone or anything. Freedom waves in the sun and bugs. (laughs) Darkest secrets. I was convicted of embezzlement when I was 21 years old. I tried to buy my way out of emotional, emotional turmoil and instead bought my way into a prison cell. I have since turned my life around but still have emotional struggles. I've made open adoption plans for two children and have very strong positive ongoing relationships with both of my birth children. I've had three abortions. Uh, I am a single mom to two amazing daughters. All in all, I have been pregnant seven times that I am aware of. While I love all of my children, I feel like a baby-making machine and have shame about my abortions. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Uh, I want to be the female with two males pleasuring me at once. I want to be desired and wanted and pleased in all ways that would encompass um, in all ways that would encompass. Uh, I feel empowered by sharing this. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd love to tell my mother to fuck off for being so hurtful and so destructive to me emotionally. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for someone to actually fight for me, fight to keep me. I wish for someone to think I was worthy enough to stand up for me. I do this for myself, but wonder what it would feel like for someone else to deem me worthy. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I've shared my sexual fantasy with my partner, and he loves the idea and loves to talk about it with me during sex. It's very powerful. How do you feel after writing these things down? A bit lighter. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Hang in there and be the best you can be for yourself. If someone did something to you you didn't deserve, don't repeat it. Be the change. I wanted to read your survey because I think it is such a great example of somebody overcoming some really hard stuff and getting to a place where you're setting boundaries, you're protecting your kids, um, you're, you know, you had committed a crime, but now you've turned your life around, um, and, and you are, you're, you're sex positive, you're in touch with your feelings, um, yeah, it, it's just like a, um, to me, this is like a realistic, this is what, like a realistic version of what recovery looks like, you know? It's it's never going to be, uh, you know, some Disney version where there's no insecurity and no struggle and, you know, we don't long for anything. Um well, there are there are some people like that, and they all live in Sedona. Oh, see, now she, somebody sent me an email saying, um, you know, Sedona is not all that you think you think it is. And actually, I'm I'm 
I'm trying to be open-minded about it. A listener said that crystals really help them and would, uh, I like to try some. They'd be happy to send me some. So I said, sure, sure. So, um, you know, maybe I'll be eating my words. This is a happy moment filled out by, oh, one other thing that I wanted to mention. I got a really beautiful email from um, a listener and he, uh, we had had a sponsor on um a little while back, and it was for um, meat products. And and he he wasn't shaming me. He was just saying that he was disappointed that I was contributing to the um, industrialized slaughter of of animals. And um, and while it didn't, while this was not news. To me, um, I when I had accepted that ad, I didn't leave enough time to reject it through um, the agency that books them, and so I felt obligated to keep that ad. But I said that please tell them that I don't want to do any more ads for them because I feel like it's bad enough that I still eat meat. I, I don't want to be promoting it. Um, and the way that he said it was so gentle and not shaming. It just, it really, uh, it really touched me. But I wanted to also mention that for anybody else that was, um, kind of disturbed by, uh, me promoting that. Um, and honestly, if, if I were really more confident in, myself and probably in, in less uh, fear of making somebody in the business world upset, I would have canceled it regardless of how how much notice. Um, so anyway, this is a happy moment filled out by Piano Trapped in My Soul. And they write, uh, the first one was well, actually, there's just one that I'm going to read. Uh, I was nine years old when my grandfather died. After the funeral, we went outside to spread his ashes, but it wasn't as ceremonious as I anticipated. Our parents filled red party cups with dry gray ash. I realized this was all that was left of my grandfather. My aunt yelled uh, out to us, realizing her mistake, Don't drink it, kids! It made us all laugh hysterically for the first time since his death, and it felt so good and made it easier to let go of someone we love. Thank you for that. Um, I really loved my uh, my uh, mother-in-law, um, and she died in 96, and I was so, so upset. She was just, just the sweetest woman, and... Um, had many of the qualities I think I had craved as a as a child and um in a in a mother and that's not to say my mom didn't do some stuff that was right um uh but when she my mother-in-law died um I <laughs> there was nobody there was nobody crying harder uh at at the uh ceremony and I think it was because it was the first time I felt a 
kind of safe, older maternal presence in my life. And now she was, she was gone. And, uh, one of the, th- my, the point of all of this is I thought we need to celebrate her. And she was, f- she was really funny, not like in an intentional way, just kind of, she was goofy and, and, uh, my ex-wife and her sisters, you know, they'd always, you know, uh, they'd make fun of her, but in a loving way. And there was all kinds of footage uh, of her. And uh, I said, let's go home and just play movies of her and remember what we loved about her. Because she died a really, really slow, painful death from uh, from cancer. And, and it really helped. So anybody out there that, that is... Um, grieving or you're about to lose somebody um it there there can be ways to um deal with it that while certainly don't take the pain away can um bring some meaning to it soften it a little bit even if it's just temporary listen to the episode too with uh caitlin um doty and uh, it's a it's a good it's a good one. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself. My vibrator is named the Master Sob Five Thousand. Uh, Master Sob is a reference to a, a name that we came up for the act of uh, masturbating and crying at the same time. I think we also have a word for um, crying and uh, standing at the sink eating junk food as well. Uh, what is sob gobbling that's what we call it sob gobbling and I think there's even one for eating cake masturbating and crying at the same time I don't know what that's called a hat trick I forget what we called it anyway uh, her struggle is uh, about having a partner that cheated. Uh, And in a sentence, she writes, the one person who has the power to comfort you when you need it most is also the one person who broke you. Uh, Having OCD and then finding out that your partner cheated on you means that you get to punish yourself with thoughts and images over and over and and over and over in an infinite loop. That must be, that must be really, really fucking brutal. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by Al, and he writes, uh, walking a best friend's dog for him while he and his partner gave birth to their first child in their home. It was pouring rain, and I was so drenched, but I needed to tire the dog out so he wouldn't get in the way of the birth. I felt so, so lucky to be a part of their lives, to have them trust me and need me on one of the biggest days of their lives. I dropped the dog off and went home. A few hours later in the morning, I walked back over and held the tiny, soft, sweet, brand new little person who now calls me uncle as the morning sun streamed in. Wow. That was like a poem. Thank you for that, Al. Um, This is... I'm going to... Actually, starting to feel a little uh, sleepy. I'm going to cut to our last two. Our last two uh, surveys. This is an awful some moment. Uh, you know how I talk sometimes about how there are themes that appear 
and the surveys that I gather together for uh, for a given uh, episode. Um, friends was kind of the theme of of this week's, and um, I want to end with these these two. One is an awful moment, and the other is a happy moment. Um, and even the awful moment, I think there's a there's a, a, a happiness to it. Um, this woman calls herself Mother's Perfect Doll, and she writes, As I was hanging out with my friends, one of them decided to use the N-word. I'm black and feel very uncomfortable with anyone using it, and my friends are Latino. They would apologize to me for using it and repeat the cycle. My social anxiety and fear of confrontation prevented me from saying anything. The next day, I was so ashamed that I was unable to tell them to stop, but rather just sat there like an idiot. Two days after the event, I remember my therapist telling me whatever I was feeling was valid and writing is a help tool for me. I drafted a very long text message and sent it out to them explaining how hurtful their behavior was, how it made me feel, and that they should never use the N-word. Also immediately, they replied with apologies and promises to never use the word. I don't care for their apologies for this was the first time in my life I took something from therapy, applied it, and was validated. It proved to me that year and a half of therapy is working. Thank you for that. That is one of the greatest things when you start to recover in a support group or therapy and you got a new tool and you just feel like, like for me, one of the best tools was realizing I don't have to stay on the phone until the other person is done. Or I don't even have to return the phone call of somebody that I don't want in my life. Um, yeah. God, that was so freeing. And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by all I want is to stop being a perfectionist. And she writes, it happened a few years ago, but I think about it every time I'm struggling to be happy. I spent all of my senior year of undergrad working on a thesis, and it was a grueling process tying together what seemed like everything I had ever studied during college. I was exhausted but proud of everything that I had done, and so the couple of weeks before I was slated to give a presentation on my paper, I invited every single person I knew to come see my presentation. I didn't have high hopes. Most of my friends weren't in my department, and though I was passionate about my topic, I knew it was arcane and not the kind of thing people wanted to spend time listening to. I thought maybe if I was lucky, a couple of my friends would come. But on the day of my presentation, a few minutes before my time slot, my friends started filing into the presentation room. Even some students I had TA'd for and some of my professors arrived. The room was small, so though only a dozen or so extra people had arrived, a couple of them were sitting on the floor just to hear me speak. As I stepped up to the podium, I could tangibly feel the support, like a blanket wrapped around me. When I looked out to the audience, my audience, I saw the excited faces of all the people who were important to me, who had helped to make my college experience truly magical, who had taught me what real good friendship and love look like, smiling back at me. I kicked ass in the presentation. As soon as I finished speaking and stepped away from the podium, all my best friends came rushing up to me to give me a giant group hug and tell me how much they loved my project, how interesting they thought it was, and how they could tell that I had worked really hard. It wasn't a grand gesture. They just showed up. But it's a reminder to me when I'm having a rough time 
that no matter how bad things are, I've got people in my corner who will always, always have my back. Beautiful. Beautiful. That, yes, that one might not, that one might be so much more than beautiful. It is B E A U. Beautiful. All right, now, now I'm annoying myself. Um, you know, I think that to myself sometimes when uh, at some of my support groups, uh, we form a circle and we'll do, you know, maybe some type of, uh, maybe say the serenity prayer or something. And it occurred to me one day, and it was at a men's meeting, and there's like 40 of us, you know, arms interlocked, smiling at each other, some of us with our heads down. And and it occurred to me, this is who I go through my life with. I'm not going through it alone. I can tap into the power of these people and the people in my other support groups if I choose to. And all of a sudden I realized, wow, the world isn't as scary and lonely as I had always thought it was. And um, I think back on that when I go through stuff, that um, when you allow people that are safe and loving into your life and you treat them the same way in return, it's... It's just a really cool feeling. It's like a good gang. <laughs> it's like it's like being in a big lame gang. It'd be funny to see two big support group gangs rumble under the viaduct. <laughs> one of them's got a broken coffee pot. The other one has the pen from the phone list. All right, that's enough. That's enough out of me. If you're out there and you're struggling, just reach out. Reach out for help. There's so many people, no matter what it is that you're feeling, there is somebody else that feels just like you that wants to know that they're not alone. And um, you can find each other or even a group of you and makes life not only bearable, but fun enjoyable and um, yeah you're not alone and thanks for listening everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up I know in some weird is bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way